Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carbonell and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I chat with Jeff Mullenkamp, portfolio manager at Mullenkamp & Company. We talked to Jeff about a wide range of topics, including their discretionary value and quality investment strategy they use at the firm, portfolio construction, position sizing, and how he views managing the portfolio tactically for different market environments and economic regimes. We also asked Jeff about investing during inflationary times, investor behavior, and much more. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Jeff Mollenkamp. Just one more thing before we start. Excess Returns has been growing a lot recently, and all of that is a result of the support from our loyal listeners and viewers. We just want to thank everyone who has taken the time to listen to us and for supporting us and allowing us to continue to reach more and more investors. If you have a minute to do it, we would ask one favor of you. If you have benefited from the podcast and could take the time to subscribe on YouTube or your preferred audio platform and to write a review, that would be greatly appreciated. Both are a big part of expanding the podcast and will allow us to continue to get great guests. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Thanks for joining us today. Justin, Jack, thanks for having me on. I really look forward to our discussion here today. You guys are having a, a good year performance-wise. I'm in preparation for this. I, I was um, reading a Wall Street Journal article from, I think it was maybe October or early November, that you're one of the you know, only equity funds, um, at least in that point in time, that was actually up for the year. So congratulations on you know, the strong performance this year. Thank you. Yeah. Um... On a relative basis, this has been a pretty good year. On an absolute basis, it's been kind of me. Um, but you know, yeah, but it's it's been I, it is, this has been a tough year for a lot of equity investors. So I mean, to, to be positive or around the break even is, is is a big win, and certainly rewarding for those investors that have hung in there with you guys um, throughout the years. Yeah, I, I think our investor base is pretty happy with us this year. Yeah, so we thought it'd be good to have you on to sort of dig into your um, stock investing approach, sort of get your thoughts, I guess, on the market, how you're positioning the portfolio, and I guess, you know, what you're thinking about when you're thinking uh, about the next maybe, you know, two to five years when it comes to um, the equity markets. Um, but before we get into all that, um, I thought it would be good to start out a little bit with your past experiences, um, because... Um, I noticed you went to West Point and then you also served um, early in your career as an officer in the army. So to start, I just thought it'd be good to hear like maybe what some of the lessons that you brought from the military over into your investment strategy and your investment approach. Well, I think it was useful um, when, you, when you plan an operation in the army you have to war game out what you think the enemy's going to do, right? So the enemy's always got a vote and they've always got choices about how they engage with you. And I, and I didn't actually do this in the war, but this was, you know, during training exercise and stuff. So you learn how to war game potential futures and you think about what might happen and then how you should react and you know, what's the earliest point at which you know the enemy is going to take a certain course of action? So if I'm defending, for instance, a hilltop and the enemy can come at me from the, the center or the left or the right, well, how do you know, you know, what are his decision points 
that that is the last point where he can change his mind. And so once he passes this point, he's now committed. And then you've got kind of a read on what he's doing. So, so that way of thinking where there are multiple possibilities, then you have to track which one is starting to develop. And I think is very useful today. And, and I use that every time I think about what the future of the economy is going to be or what the future of a stock is going to be, that kind of thing. What are the, what's the broad spectrum of possibilities? And then how is it unfolding? And you start eliminating possibilities, right? So that's useful. The other thing that's useful is you're forced in the army to make decisions without all the information you'd really like to have, right? So you never have all the information you'd like to have to make a decision, but you got to make it anyway. Uh, and that's also very useful, right? So there's always more information I would love to have about a stock or, or about a situation, and you're just never going to get it. Uh, but you still have to make a decision. You still have to commit to a course of action. So I, I think those both translate pretty well. And that's, that's where I brought with me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That, uh, the, the, those are great examples. Um, curious here. Do you ever, you'll see where I'm going with this in a second, but I'm just curious. Do you watch CNBC or no? Not usually, no. Okay. Well, because when your dad used to appear on CNBC, which he used to do it a lot, he was always someone that I take it off mute for. For, for the most part, when I have CNBC on, I have it muted. But there are certain individuals and people that when they appear, I, I would value their commentary and I basically would unmute it. And what I always found very interesting about your father was he always made sense to me. Like his, like the common sense sort of meter was like off the charts with this guy. So I would always like be listening and be like, he just makes a ton, a, sh a shitload of sense right here. Like, and, and, and so I guess the question there is, um, you know, you've obviously worked, um, you know, with your father for, for, for many years, but what would you say would be the biggest lessons that you learned from him, um, in your career? So I think, you hit on one, you've got to talk to your clients in the language they understand. And Ron does a fantastic job of that. You know, he grew up as a farmer and then he went to MIT and then he went to Harvard, right? So he can talk, um, both in, in the language of the industry, but more importantly, in the language of his clients. Uh, and that's a very important and useful thing to remember. And, and I, I learned that a little bit in the army too, right? So you know, for a period of time, I was at the Pentagon. And I ran the IT department that supported, you know, part of the operations center. And when the generals had questions, they did not want to hear technical language because they, they didn't understand it. So half of my job was literally translating what my technical guys were telling me into a language that my boss understood. Uh, and so Ron does that very well. And he also taught me just a ton about, you know, how to evaluate a company, uh, what your investment criteria ought to be how to look at it and, and just kind of a worldview, um, all of which, you know, I've picked up, um, mostly over the last 10 or 15 years while I was working for him, but a little bit, you know, before then. Um, yeah, I should have, I should have listened to your dad earlier in my career. Cause when I, when I would talk to investors, I would always say like, oh, this is a great sharp ratio portfolio or something like that. And they would be like, well, what is that? Like, what are you talking about? I have no idea. So I probably, I learned that lesson too, but I probably could have benefited from his, from his insights at the beginning of my career. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that's an easy trap to fall into. You know, every profession has its own language and you can kind of get trapped in it. 
but you won't make sense to anybody outside the profession. Um, I want to dig into your approach a little bit. And, you know, as, as sort of we mentioned, we're quant investors and sort of one of the first things we like to do when we classify our approach is sort of try to put it into a general bucket. So the idea of, is it a value approach? Is it a growth approach? Does it look for high quality companies? So I'm wondering just in general, if you could talk about like what your approach is. If you want to classify it, and, and I'm not sure that's always useful. I mean, it's, it's useful for Morningstar. Um, but I'd probably say we're closest to a value approach, right? So we try and establish what we think a company is worth, compare that to what the market is charging for it. And then if there's a big difference, that becomes interesting to us. Now, growth, of course, is a part of value, right? You can't ignore future growth prospects, either up or down, when you're establishing what you think a company is worth. Now, and I would say that the quality, you know, sometimes the best investments are poor quality companies. And usually that happens, you know, like after 08, 09, when there's this big credit event and, and the things that screamed coming out of that were the ones that almost went bankrupt, but didn't quite, right? So we're, they were right on that edge. They were priced for bankruptcy. You know, one that comes to mind is, is Axel. It was, it's a, a manufacturer of axles for cars, right? It was trading below a buck. We ended up not buying it because neither I nor the other analyst that was tracking it had the guts to do it. But it went on to 20 bucks in about three years, right? So, so there are periods when going for low quality is the right move from an investment perspective. Um, over the long term, yeah, you're probably better served with high quality, assuming you can buy it at a fair price. A lot of times high quality companies are too expensive and you'll actually have not that great returns because you paid too much for them. Um, so yeah, I would have to argue that, that we look at the value in the company you know, primarily in terms of how profitable they are and their ability to reinvest money profitably. And if they can't do that, are they returning it to me so I can do that? Uh, and and that's, that's pretty much our approach. Yeah, you're, you're hitting on something that Michael Mobison, we had on the podcast, said to me as well, which is I was asking him sort of about this value and growth debate. And he said, well, there really is no value and growth debate because everything is just about buying a company for less than it's worth. So, you know, there's no such thing as like, we don't have to classify it in all those things. So I think that that's an important point. And, you know, as, as quants, we sort of get trapped in that sometimes. But, you know, again, we're, we're just trying to buy companies for less than they're worth. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, the, I mean, I'm not, I think it's useful to talk about growth, right? Because the people who invest in growth usually are investing in companies that are growing their revenues, but aren't yet profitable, right? And that works during certain periods and it, it's not working right now. Um, but that's, that's a valid approach if you, and, and it's a different focus. Um, to, to me, there are just a lot more assumptions you have to make. The more assumptions you have to make about a company, in my opinion, the more speculative it becomes, right? The riskier it becomes. There are more unknowns and fewer knowns. Uh, and so you're making assumptions that have to come true in order for you to be successful in your investment. And that, that's the challenge of growth investing, in my opinion. How do you think about the starting point? You know, that's something that always interests me is, you know, there's so many stocks out there. I mean, probably like with our investable universe, there's probably like 2,700 or so that we could technically invest in based on their liquidity and their size. How do you think about like getting that down to a number of companies you can actually analyze? So our, our process, uh, we use the value line universe and we pull data on all 2,500 or whatever number that is. And we go through them manually on a monthly basis and we, we, we download a, a number of data points into a spreadsheet, use that to calculate what our value for it is based on a model that Ron developed in the seventies and the primary inputs to that are return on shareholder equity and inflation. And, and we look for 
companies of interest. You know, again, typically it'll give us a number as to what, according to the data, the value is. Um, and a lot of times we, particularly now, after all these stock buybacks, you know, uh, shareholder equity is not what it used to be. It's now a altered number. Uh, so we have to be a little bit careful about that. And a lot of times we will manually adjust it to something that we think is more accurate. But that gives us a, a screen, if you will, that we manually go through and then we pull out companies of interest for further study. That's really what it comes down to. You mentioned return on equity, and I was wondering that that's an interesting metric. And, and I'm wondering if you could talk about that seems like that is one of your primary metrics and what you're doing. And I wonder if you could talk about why you selected that as a primary metric and why that's important for businesses. Well, it, it definitely is uh, a primary input for us. And, and, you know, when you think about investing in business, you can either pr provide, you can provide capital one of two ways. You can lend it to them or you can take an ownership stake. Uh, and Ron talks about, you know, if you're the lender, management is basically working against you. They're working to pay you off. If you're the owner, they're working for you. And any company that you'd be willing to lend to, you'd probably rather be an owner of in terms of getting better returns. So, so if you're going to be an equity investor, then looking at the return on your equity seems appropriate. And he found back in the 70s that ROE was fairly stable over long periods of time, so it became useful. Uh, again, you know, now so many companies have done so much in terms of buybacks. Sometimes we either manually adjust the return on equity or we have to look at return on invested capital or return on shareholder capital to use that as a reasonable idea of what return the company is getting on its investments. Because that, that's really what you're looking for, right? For me to get a return on my investment, the company has got to get a return on their investment. And I'm interested in what rate of return they're getting, right? So if, if they're investing at 20%, that's their expectation and they're actually on average getting it. Okay, well, I can invest a you know, book and a half and still make 15%. And I'm pretty happy. Um, so, but that's kind of, you know, what returns are the company, is the company getting on their capital? So what should I expect? And, and that a lot depends on what I'm paying. So if I'm paying two or three times book, I'm only getting half or a third of their return. If I'm paying half book, I'm getting double. That's kind of how we think about it. What do you think about, you know, one of the things we've seen in our research is a lot of times firms that have high returns on capital, it's hard for them to sustain them for really long periods of time. And, you know, we've, we've done a lot of research around, like, what do you, what can you use as additional criteria to try to find these firms that can sustain the high return on capital over time? I'm wondering if, you, if you've looked at that at all and if you think there's any characteristics that, of these firms that do sustain these high returns on capital. So they tend to be capital light, in my opinion. Um, you know, Warren Buffett looks for companies that can generate additional returns with very little additional capital required. And I think that's a beautiful way to phrase it. Um, and so I'm happy to, to learn from what he has to say and say, okay, that's, that's a great idea. But you also need pricing power, you know, and, then, and people will call it a moat, call it whatever you want, but you need pricing power in there too. Um, and I think those are the two things you're looking for. Um, and it's tough, right? It's really tough to find someone or a company that you think is going to have long-term above normal returns on equity. Uh, and then, of course, you've got to keep tabs on them, right? So, so you're going to have to say, are, are they, in fact, sustaining that? Or is it starting to degrade, usually because of competition, right? Well, that, that's generally how it works. There will be competing products coming to the space, and, and the price they were able to charge starts to decay. Uh, and so, you know, a whole lot of companies end up with, with product cycles. That's really what drives them. 
Um, and I would say almost every company is like that, right? So we, we did a, a nice job investing in Microsoft, which in about 2014, when it was at the tail end of its product cycles and it become essentially a cash cow. So it's generating great returns, but it's got no growth. We bought them at that point. Uh, and then they, they found another product, rolled it out, and now they're on a growth phase again and the stock takes off. That, that was not part of the initial investment thesis. That was, um, call it a, you know, we had a call option on them figuring out another product and they did. They had to hire a new CEO to do it and they did. Uh, so that, that worked out really well, but that, that is a huge challenge, right? And to me, that's the challenge of, you know, buy and hold. Okay. Well, how do you predict more than a year or two out? My answer is you don't, you keep an eyeball on it. And you look for either the upside surprise or the downside surprise, right? They're not doing, they're not maintaining. So then you move on to something better. Yeah. This is an area where I think, you know, discretionary investors do have a big advantage over those of us that are quants is I haven't been able to find a way to sort of quantify whether a moat is sustainable over time. You know, I think a lot of it does involve digging into a business and it's very hard to do it, you know, programmatically or to do it with a computer to figure out, you know, whether there's a sustainable moat there. Sure. Cause you, I mean, you're trying to predict the future. And if we could program a computer to do that, we'd actually probably would change the future because humans would never like act that way. Oh, that, you know, the computer program would say, this is what's going to happen. And we're like, oh, heck no, we're not doing that. We go do something else. Okay. So yeah, I can understand your challenge. Do you, uh, do you use momentum or price action at all in your process? You know, will you, if you see a value in a company, will you wait for the, the market to recognize it or something like that? Um, usually the. So we use it a couple of ways, right? Certainly on the buy side, you know, you get your best bargains when the whole market is selling off. That shouldn't surprise any, right? But typically what happens is all the value guys have been looking at the market and they're looking at the market and say, it's too expensive, it's too expensive. And it starts to sell off and then they start to salivate, right? Oh, oh. Look at how cheap that is relative to where it was six months or a year ago. And they buy it. And then they get their ass handed to them for another six months or a year, because for whatever reason, things keep going down, right? That, that was my formative experience. I came in in October of 2008, right? And I come in and, and all the analysts are like, oh my God, look at how cheap this stuff is. We need to buy, buy, buy. And we lost our ass for six months, nine months more till it finally had a bond. So you want to use price action and price momentum when you're looking to buy in an attempt to get it on the wing not on the downward slide, right? Uh, we would like to see a bottom form and then catch it on the upside. And we're happy to miss that first 10 or 20%. We don't always do it that well, but that's certainly what we're trying to. Um, on the sell end of things, you know, when we buy a company, we think it's undervalued. Hopefully we bought it right and it's on an upward cycle. Well, if that works out and the company meets our expectations, at some point it probably becomes fairly valued or overvalued based on our numbers. And so at that point we're saying, okay, well, we're happy to ride the momentum as long as it lasts, but once it looks like that's faltering, now we're going to try and sell. So the idea is to capture just a little bit more. If the market is, is really enthusiastic about it and takes it another 10, 15, 20, whatever percent up, um, if we can capture that, we'll do that. And that's where we, we lean on price momentum to help us out. Yeah. And we did that pretty successfully, I'd say, in the summer of 21, which is that's when we lined up on most of our tech stocks, right? So we own that. We own, still own 
Apple, we own Microsoft, we still own some Microsoft, but they have become large portions of our portfolio because they had done so nicely for us for five or six years, had become fully and then overvalued. And we were looking pretty much primarily at their price moves to ch tell us when to get out. Um, and we sold about uh, half or two thirds of our positions, give or take more or less at the top for the, for the, the big tech. Uh, and we've been really happy with how that worked out. So that's, that's kind of a success story, but that's what we try to do. We look at it and it's how we look at it. That's what we're trying to accomplish with it. One of the things I saw in researching for this interview, and also you mentioned it earlier, is that you guys prefer to use, when you look at valuation, you, you focus on inflation rates instead of interest rates. And I'm wondering if you could talk about why that is. Well, the reason is in the seventies, bonds were mispriced relative to stocks. And Ron's observation was everybody that used interest rates came up with much higher values. And so they were buying into a declining market. When Ron, you know, he used, in, uh, excuse me, inflation, he came up with much lower values and he was sitting on his hands waiting for the value to come around. Um, so our observation, and he's since written about this and basically taught me, bonds can be mispriced relative to inflation. So if you put your, if you plant your feet on bond prices, you may be wrong. Um, and that, frankly, that's what we saw this year, right? Bonds have been, bonds have been mispriced relative, relative to inflation now for about a decade. And it got worse this year and finally caught up to them. Um, so that's, that's why we use it. You know, I mean, if you think about it, right, if you've got a company that's growing its revenues at 5%, in a 2% inflation environment, you're saying, okay, well, they're either, they've either got pricing power or they're taking market share. A 7% inflation environment, you have a completely different conclusion if they're growing the revenues at 5%. Now you've got to conclude they don't have pricing power, right? So if you're not taking inflation into account, you get a very different view of what's happening in a company. That's another way of looking at it. Yeah, we, we've, we've all been spoiled for a long time and that we didn't have to take inflation into account that much because there really wasn't any. You know, so like for my whole career, you know, there really hasn't been any inflation. So all of us, I think, are learning on the fly here as to how to incorporate, you know, inflation into all the various processes we run. And that's really something we've been consciously doing the last six to six months to a year. You say, Ron, what do you remember of the 70s? What worked for you then? What didn't work for you then? Um, you know, pulling back, pulling, pulling out his old notes and, and the things he had written down. Uh, so I, I think it's an advantage to us that we have somebody that, invested through that period in a professional capacity uh, and wrote about it. Yeah, so I think we've got some lessons learned there that are going to help us go forward. Yeah, especially, you know, I think, I think it's really good to talk to people who have been through it because, you know, it's one thing to sit there and like look at the market returns of the 70s or, you know, look at how models performed in the 70s in a test or something like that. It's a totally different thing to be sitting on the ground managing money in the 70s. So I've, I've tried, you know, it's great that you have your, your father there to help you. I've tried to talk to as many people as possible who actually lived through it. So you can understand what the experience was like. Um, I want to ask you, you know, one of the unique things about your approach, you know, Justin mentioned before you, you're a really good performance this year. And I think one aspect of that is your willingness to hold cash in your portfolio. A, a lot of funds, you know, will hold hundred, will be hundred percent invested no matter what, and won't adjust that. And, you know, you do have a willingness to, to raise cash when you see the conditions, you know, there to merit it. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about that and how you decide when to raise cash. So we tend to be bottom up investors, right? We scan through stocks every, every week. We're looking for values, but then we try to temper that enthusiasm that we en inevitably end up with some bright idea 
with an understanding of what's going on in the economy and in the world. So, uh, as in terms of, of raising cash, that's usually triggered by the process I described a minute ago, where our holdings get to be overvalued, right? And then in the context of, oh, look at what's happening in the broader economy. The Fed is starting to raise rates. The Fed is starting to withdraw liquidity from the system. Typically, that results in a decline in asset prices, right? And you kind of put two and two together. And so you, you have a greater uh, willingness to sell because of the influence of that larger environment. What we don't do is we don't say, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm worried about what's going to happen in the next six months. Let's raise 50% cash. That's not how it works. It's things have gotten overvalued. Prices are starting to roll over. Here's the context we think we're operating in. Let's sell things that you know, are either fully priced or at risk of a big downward move because you know, their earnings are going to get hit. And I would have to say that our housing stocks a year ago were probably in that position, right? So as interest rates start to come up, we very rapidly transitioned from a housing boom to a housing bust is where we're at today. And, and you know that, right? You know that those are interest rate sensitive stocks and companies. Uh, and so you say, okay, well, I see that train coming. Let me get off the tracks. Right. Um, but that's, so that, that's kind of how we approach it. It's more of a, it's a combination of what we see going on with the stock and its value and its price movement with the broader um, macro environment that we're operating. Pull all that together. And then we say, okay, well, let's let's reduce here and let's let's shift the the uh, portfolio as appropriate. So, in terms of the valuation part of that, are you thinking about it more in terms of the opportunity set of companies you want to own rather than saying, "Oh, the market has a twenty five PE, so I want to raise cash"? You're thinking about more your specific companies. Correct. Correct. Yeah, I don't. You know, I'm aware of what the market PE is. I don't make decisions based on the market PE. And, and looking at the flip side of that, because this is actually kind of a real world example right now, since you, you are, you know, in a higher cash position, how do you think about that on the other side? So, you know, obviously the market today, where as we interview you, the market is tanking, but uh, as we kind of go through this bear market, how will you think on the, think about it on the backside in terms of redeploying your capital? So the, the first question is, do you find, or do we find that, you know, where are we finding value, right? So, so we have increased uh, the inflation assumption that we use in our calculation. So we have a now relative to about a year and a half, two years ago, right? So we have a lower value than we did two years ago for a given ROE and a given company. Um, when we find companies that look attractive on that set of assumptions, then we say, okay, is the environment in which they're operating more likely to produce good news or bad news, right? So for, you know, we can use housing, for instance, right? So we all know that because interest rates went up, housing sales have come down, and we've got a slew of bad news coming out with companies right now. Well, the good news is, from my perspective, the values are there, right? Those companies are almost all trading at approximately one times book value, which is typically where they trade in a recession, right? So they're priced for a recession. You've actually got a recession going on in that industry, if not in the broader economy. Uh, so they're, they're price cheap. That's appropriate. And simply the question now is, do you expect more bad news in the next six months? And so you're better off waiting a little bit. Or do you think that, that uh, the news from here is going to start to improve and become less bad? And that's a bit of a judgment call. But that's really what we're looking for. First, that the value has to be there. Second, we have to have some idea 
that things aren't going down anymore, right? And from a, a broader perspective, as long as the Fed is raising interest rates and continuing to pull liquidity out of the system, it's pretty hard for me to believe that the broader market is going to go anywhere but down, right? That gen those two things generally mean the market's going down. So I think um, in general, I'm better off sitting on my hands right now until the Fed is done with its squeezing. And then your, you know, history will tell you you've got a lag of about six months to a year before you hit a market bottom. Okay, I'll be mindful of that. It won't prevent me from going and investing in a company that I think is is really interesting and really at a good price. But I will be mindful of that as I make that decision, if that makes sense. And when you return to fully invested, is it something you'll do very rapidly, or is it something that'll be kind of a slow build up over time? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it depends on the conditions, I guess, in the market, right? Here's the funny thing that I've learned. Like I said, you know, I started in the business in October of 08. And in January of 09, if you recall, the, the market kind of bottomed in, what was it, December of 08, and then touched the same bottom in March of 09, right? So it had kind of a double bottom. And in January of 09, I wrote a memo to Ron, who was the portfolio manager at the time. And I said, in it, I, I said, you know, the market's going to keep going down and these are the things we need to sell at the market bottom. So I've, I've kind of reflected on that, right? That's a little, actually a little bit embarrassing, but the realization is that the, the useful part of reflecting on that is when the market, when, when it's the best time in the world to go and invest fresh money, right? When you can buy almost anything and be a hero, you are going to be so disgusted with the market. You're not going to want to look at it. You're not going to want to do your stocks. You're going to want to pull up in a ball in your bed and hide. That's what it feels like, right? That's the emotional state you're going to be in when, in fact, you should be investing money. And, I, and it happened again in 2020, right? When everything was going down for COVID, that's exactly how I felt. Good news was I was self-aware this time. Hey, this is the way it feels when you ought to be putting money to work, knucklehead. So don't curl up in a ball. Be looking very hard. Look for those nonsense prices, right? And that's exactly what happened in 08 or 09. There were nonsense prices. There were ridiculously low prices because people were unwinding leverage and enforced selling it. Price was and it happened again in 2020. I did better in 2020, right? So having lived through that once, I did better the second time around. My hope is I do better the third time around, assuming we get some kind of a downward um, waterfall like those two events. So far, we really haven't had that. The downward trend has been much overly, and there have been more, you know, bear market rallies. But my expectation, frankly, is sooner or later, that's what we're going to get into again. As leverage unwinds from the market, you're going to see nonsense prices and you're going to want to put a lot of work in to find them and, and react on them. And um, it probably doesn't matter too much whether I put the money to work quickly or slowly. You know, 0809, excuse me, 0809, anytime between December and March, you had three months mucking along there at the bottom. If you'd have put your money to work then, and for that matter, if you'd have put your money to work anytime in 2009, you'd have been a hero, right? You don't really have to nail the bottom. You got to be approximately close. Um, so I'm not sure how, to, my guess is I'll put some money to work pretty quickly 
and then hold on to some reserve just in case the market goes down a little more because you never know until you look more of your mirror if you actually found a bottom or not. So that would be my guess, you know, kind of a mix of the two. Yeah, you know, there's, there's a saying that when the time comes to buy, you're not going to want to. And, you know, I think I've learned that too throughout my career is, you know, it's, you have to have like your finger has to be shaking, hitting the buy button. You know, that, that's how you know it might be the right time. If you feel comfortable and like birds are singing, then it's probably the wrong time. Well, and, and the, the corollary to that is also true. When it's time to sell, you won't want to, right? In, in the summer of 21, after everything's had gone up for five years, nobody wanted to sell those, right? You, you won't feel good making the right decision at those times. Now, the rest of the time, it doesn't matter so much, right? But at the turning points of the market, what you feel is not what you should be paying attention to. You should simply recognize what your feelings are and say, oh, that's a sign, right? That's an indicator. I can use that. I can use that emotional reaction to help me recognize what's going on because everybody else is feeling the same way. Do you, I wonder if that's, that might be a place where your military training helps a lot, right? Because I would think the discipline that comes with that is probably really helpful in times like that and like really emotional environments. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there were um, times when things were very stressful and, and you just really have to work at being calm and, and doing what was necessary. Um, so yeah, I, I would agree with that. Just a couple more for me before I hand it back to Justin. I want to ask you about position sizing. I mean, how do you think about how many positions to hold in your portfolio and, and how to size those positions? We like 20 to 30. Uh, so we want to be diversified, but you can take that too far. Uh, so the, the happy medium we found is 20 to 30. So you're looking at, you know, three, four, five percent initial position sizes. Once a, when a company gets to about 10, frankly, I think that's a little more risk than I'm willing to live with. So we, we generally start to scale it back it grows that, that much of the portfolio. And we've had that happen a couple of times. But you'll, you'll start them off fairly equally. So you won't like overweight positions. You have more conviction in from the beginning. You'll kind of start them off in the same area. Generally. Um, but there's, there's room in our thinking for, you know, how speculative, um, a position is right. How much comfort you really have. But again, you know, I, I'll go back to 08, 09, you know, it, it put 1% to work in an axle that, that does a 20 X over the next four or five years. And you're, it's still making your day. Right. Um, so I think you need to be mindful as an investor to want to, you know, your downside ought to be small relative to your upside, right? You should have asymmetric returns in that regard. Um, so, so, you know, if you, so yeah, we, we, we do, we do some of that with position sizing, you know, um, the, the best way to think about it is probably, you know, I read a book I forget, by a professional poker player. I forget her name off the top of my head. It's thinking in bed. Annie Duke, maybe. Thank you. Yes. Great book. Uh, and, and something that you definitely want to take with, you know, thinking bets, everything is a probability. Nothing is a certainty. And so when you, when you think about your investment, you try to size it appropriate to the amount of, of certainty you have and the pro the possible probable outcomes. So, um, that's, yep. That's where we are. The last thing I want to ask you about is selling. And you sort of referenced this before when you talked about having to monitor your positions and not just buying and holding forever. But how do you think about, you know, if you have a position you have on, how do you think about like when you decide to sell? I mean, are you looking back at that same criteria you used to buy it and asking, is it still true? Is that sort of the process? Uh, so the first thing you got to think about is when you buy it, 
and, and this is particularly true in my opinion for companies that have earnings that res that vary a lot with the economic cycle right not so i'll just call them cyclical companies but you gotta you gotta think about at the beginning how you want to play it am i, am I going to play this housing company for for one cycle of the housing market or do i want to ride this through over multiple cycles of the housing market and, and we need to think about why would i do the one versus the other and which one do i want to do because what you don't want to do is change your mind in the middle right you don't want to buy it and say okay i'm going to buy this this housing this home builder and i'm going to you know because we're at a, a deer in the housing market we're at a low point and it's cheap it's selling a book and i'm going to ride it until it sells a two-edged book and then i'm going to sell it. that's my plan okay well, when it comes to two times book, when the housing market is extending a little farther than you thought it might, or suddenly you, you're just so happy with how it's done, you're like, well, you know, I'll bet this just keeps going. You can get yourself in trouble and you can ride it too far and it comes down and you lose half of your gains. Um, or you can say, I do think they have, you know, some, some unique advantages. I think that's useful to hold them over multiple cycles in the housing market. And I'm going to live with the 30 or 40 or 50% drawdown from the peak that it inevitably will have during the, the tail end of the next cycle, which we just saw. Because um, otherwise, you know, you'll, you'll start to write it down and it'll be down 30 or 40% and you'll, you'll kind of panic. You change your mind, you sell it, and that's more or less the bottom and then you miss the next up cycle. So you have to be a little bit consistent in how you want to approach that company based on how that company operates and the environment in which it operates. But then, yeah, you're, you're looking for, is the company meeting my expectations or is it failing my expectations or has something happened that I should reset my expectations higher because, I, you know, I just got good news. And that's kind of the Microsoft story that I told you earlier. Our expectation was that it would be a nice cash cow and generally like cash and, and hand it to us. But the good news was they found a new product and it was a large product and it generated a whole new product cycle. So you know, we, we don't, so now we have to change our mindset. Okay. Well, now we have to kind of reframe how we think about that. And, and we're going to, you know, kind of hold it during that growth phase that it's going on. Um, yeah, you're, you're monitoring is it meeting my expectations, exceeding my expectations or, or missing but my expectations, not necessarily, you know, the analyst expectations. Um, and you make your decisions there. I wanted to ask you a question around behavioral finance and it is, if you kind of could think about, cause you guys have been managing money for a long time and obviously you work with investors on um, not only do you have the fund, but then you have the separately managed accounts as well. So when you think about the clients that have done the best with you, what, when I say the best, so the when, when you think about like your, the, the clients that have, I guess, yeah, done the best, what would be the set of characteristics, the set of behavioral traits that those investors have that sort of stand out in your mind? I think, you know, Warren Buffett will say that, that stocks get the honors they deserve. And I think that's true for portfolio managers too. And the, the, the key really is that my investors think the same way I do. Because if they don't, then they're going to be pulling their cash out at the, you know, we will have done poorly. The market will have tanked, whatever the case is. 
Uh, they'll be pulling their cash out saying, oh, you guys are idiots. Right at the moment where I'm finding values and putting cash to work. And if, if we're out of sync like that, it's not going to work for either of us, right? They're, they're basically selling at the bottom. And I don't have, you know, I will have raised cash hopefully ahead of time to be prepared for that buying opportunity. But now it's dissipated on me and I don't have it available to put it to, to work like I had planned on. So to me, it's not that they have a set of characteristics. It's that we are, we share an approach to investing so that we're more or less in sync and we're not working at cross purposes with each other because that gets really painful. And, and then frankly, it's just a bad relationship and, and for everybody's benefit, it needs to end. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think if you can get that sort of philosophical alignment up front, and you get the right clients on the bus, they're going to be the ones to, you know, not necessarily look at year to year maybe performance and be able to stick with you and then get the most out of the strategy over time. So, you know, we think it's important to explain how we approach investing. We very rarely talk individual stocks uh, because frankly, by the time you, know, it, you, you can never trust me when I, when I talk about a stock, right? I can't tell you what I think about it today because if I tell you I like it, you might suspect I'm just pumping it up so I can sell it to you and get out. And so it just, it just doesn't work. But it's important for us to think about how we approach investing and how we uh, commit money and what we're looking to do so they understand that and it makes sense to them. And that helps to make for a better relationship. And, they, and if it's not a fit, they figure it out before we get into some kind of a market-induced crisis. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny on the individual stocks side. Uh, on Twitter yesterday, a guy that I follow wrote something that like even the best performing strategies, you know, only get a, have about a, the very best have about a 60% hit rate or 60% accurate accuracy rate. So six out of 10 holdings are winners, um, but there, there's going to be losers in there as well. And that's just another little part of, you know, any active investment, any, any investment strategy. Um, but, you know, a lot of investors don't, Sometimes they, they, they kind of, that gets lost. You know, they think if this portfolio manager's picking stocks, well, they better all be winners. Well, that's just not the reality. Of it. <clears throat> yep. Yep. Um, so we, we do our very best to educate our clients and to make sure that they understand why we're doing what we're doing and what we're seeing. Uh, and we think that helps. So, um, I guess in the end here, you know, there, there are some sort of macro market trend things. We just kind of thought we'd get your thoughts on, like you said, you're, you're, you guys are bottoms up stock pickers, but the macro environment certainly, you know, plays, I guess, a part in the valuation of those companies. And so you guys are thinking about, thinking about this stuff. So the first question is, are you, I mean, in the, this year, most stocks are down, um, not all stocks, but you know, the technology sector, a lot of those growth names, um, sort of got hit the hardest. And even the high quality growth companies. So are you seeing you, and you mentioned you own Microsoft in the past. I don't know if you still do, but are any of these, are any of these tech, you know, large cap tech names kind of popping up or getting interesting given where the valuations have come down to or anything? For the most part, not yet. Um, and I think you don't need to be in a hurry. So the way I kind of think about what's one of the big things that's been happening the last two years, I think we blew a bubble, um, in many, many things, right? I think we had a bubble in housing. I think we had a bubble in bonds. I think we had a bubble in stocks, particularly tech stocks. And the, the swing end of the bubble, if you will, was cryptocurrencies, right? Uh, so, it was so I think that the bubble in profitless tech, and that's probably the best way to think about it, 
started to unwind uh, about a year and a half ago now. And, and, you know, not doing anything too complicated, but just looking at how long it took the first tech bubble to unwind. That was about two years. And after that, even the good companies that, that had been flying high and crashed to ridiculous prices, they were dead money for a period of a year or two, right? So I am very interested in seeing what good companies come out of this tech crash, but I don't feel like I need to be in any hurry to invest in because simply based on that history. You know, that's a sample size of one. So take it for what it's worth. Uh, but usually, you know, when investors get very enthusiastic about a company and there's a, all this hype or a whole sector, whole industry, right? And then they lose their, their ass in there. They don't want to look at it again for a while. They don't want to hear about it. It reminds them of the loss, right? So you have to get a whole new generation of investors to be interested in in it for that to start working again and for people to start caring about it and, and to work their way back into it. I think that's kind of the psycho psychology behind why it's dead money for a period of time. You know, the, the amateurs don't want to talk about it and the professionals can't sell it to anybody because they don't, they just don't want to hear. I, I don't want to hear about that when I lost my head. So I think that's where you're at with most of the big cap tech. Um, having said that, you know, I talked about how you want to play different companies and, and how you want to invest in them. Well, we do still own Apple. We do still own Microsoft because I think they do have long-term advantages. Uh, and while I sold a portion of them, I'm also happy to hold on to a portion because I think that's going to work out for me in the long term. Uh, so, you know, a little bit of a split decision there, if you will. Um, but yeah, they, they got overvalued and, and they're not, not really at prices in the moment. Certainly the price momentum isn't, isn't, uh, appropriate for putting new money into those names right now, right? The price of the amount is still down. Um, so that's, you know, the rest of it though, I would go kind of on a name by name basis because they're all a little different. You had mentioned, um, that you were sort of looking at the late seventies and Ron's experience and investing during that period and high inflation and, um, sort of trying to think back and what he did to get through it and the types of, you know, stocks that he was looking at and the companies he was finding. So. I mean, how are you, how are you thinking about inflation? Are, are you changing your process at all, given where inflation is and, or are you sort of in the camp of it's going to come down and sort of ease, or do you think we're going to be at higher levels of inflation for, you know, longer than some people think? Well, I don't think we're going to stay at seven, uh, but I would be very surprised if we got all the way back down to two. So I guess my um, operating assumption going forward is we're going to see inflation next year and the following year probably on the order of 4 or 5%. And part of the reason I say that is there are whole, you know, in the 70s, there weren't legal mechanisms in place to change you know, salaries and benefits based on the rate of inflation. And then after the experience of that time period, they all got put in place. So, you know, when you see a month or, I guess about a month ago in the Wall Street Journal, the Social Security uh, payments are going to increase by 9% starting in January. That's because they changed the law because the retired population got screwed the last time. Well, no one's kind of thinking about that. 
But what's going to happen here in two weeks is there are going to be a huge number of pay increases simply based on last year's CPI number. And so you've got all these, these increased costs coming into the system with a lag that have got to be incorporated into pricing going forward. And I don't think anybody's really wrestled with that yet. You know, and I don't know, I mean, we don't, I don't know how much of the population is on, um, you know, multi-year contracts. Uh, but I know, for instance, that we just talked about Social Security, but all the government employees are going to be the same way, uh, both state and federal, right? They're all going to get a nice big pay bump coming out of this. So my suspicion is, or at least the risk of higher inflation is you do get a wage price spiral. You know, they talked about that in the 70s. I think there are reasons for that to get kind of spun up again. But you get these feedback loops that perpetuate the inflation that right now people aren't really thinking through um, and, and grappling with. You know, you don't have... I, I'm doing a lot of reading about inflation. And frankly, the more I read, the more confused I am, right? Because everybody's got a different opinion on what causes inflation and how to beat inflation and all those other habits. So I don't have the answers, but I do have an opinion, right? And when I look at what happened in the 70s and how we broke inflation in the 70s, you know, a couple of things happened. One was, yeah, the Fed raised rates under Volcker. And it's also the time that Jimmy Carter started encouraging oil producers to start producing oil. So cost of energy came down at about the same time. And then Ronnie Reagan basically continued the de deregulation effort that Jimmy Carter had, right? So regulation, higher regulation raises prices because it, it requires more effort to do anything. It incurs delays, right? So when I look at what's going on today and say, okay, well, of all those pieces that, that it took during the, the late 70s, early 80s to break inflation, how many of those we're operating right now. And I've only got one, right? You've got Jay Powell reining in uh, the, the Federal Reserve, raising interest rates and pulling out liquidity. But you, you've got government still trying to subsidize demand. So even as Jay Powell is trying to reduce aggregate demand to try and bring prices down, you've got California handing out $1,000 per person to uh, ameliorate gasoline prices, right? So you're working across purposes. You've got the federal government and most of the state governments that continue to increase regulation, not decrease regulation, right? You're not encouraging any energy producers to do anything in terms of producing more energy. So, so I'm skeptical of the idea that inflation is going to go away on its own. I think there's a fairly high probability that inflation remains high relative to recent history. My guess is on the order of four or five percent. Um, and when I look at bond prices, I don't think bonds are pricing that in, right? So if we have 4% inflation in the next two years, yeah, the, the two-year is priced about right, but the 10-year is not. The 10-year ought to be something like 6%, which would imply losses going forward in the bond market and which would imply losses going forward in the stock market because the stock market, you know, the stock market right now is, is reacting to the, the rate of change of inflation, but the level matters too. And it's, it's not reacting to a higher, it's not pricing in a higher rate of inflation next year uh, like it ought to in terms of the, the broad market. Some sectors are priced pretty well, but many, many sectors are not. And I would say the whole, the whole market is not. Well, that, that kind of relates to my next question, which 
you know, if you think about what's happened in the market this year, um, it seems like most of the losses are reflective of inflation and higher interest rates. But then the question becomes, if we go into a recession, if we're in a recession, if we go into a recession, let's say, you know, in the first six months of next year, anytime next year, I guess, is any of that being discounted in stocks today? And if it isn't, then that means, you know, clearly prices are going to go lower. But if we don't go into a recession, then maybe we're sort of closer to the bottom than many people think. I'm just kind of curious on that sort of idea. Um, now I would say some sectors are definitely pricing in recession and I'll use housing yet. Housing typically bottoms at about one time book during, during housing recession. And that's where it's priced right now. The only question in my mind is, are the home builders going to have to write off a portion of their book based on their pricing, right? Housing is priced for recession. Um, but I, you know, I was looking at uh, capital goods, cat and Cummins and those kind of guys, they just jumped like 20, 25% in the last two months. I'm like, how does that make sense if we're anticipating a recession? So I think certain part portions of the market are, and certain portions of the market are not. Uh, so depending on where you look, you might say that, yeah, that, that stock is priced for recession, or you might say, you know, there's a lot of downside potential. Uh, here if we actually get a recession. And I think the odds are pretty good that we do, right? Um, but there is, there is an enormous amount of noise in the economy um, still coming out of COVID, right? I mean, amazing that you shut down first China, then the West, then, you know, China sort of opened back up and then the West sort of opened back up and then China shut down again and now China's opening up. Right. So you've got all these major portions of every supply chain that are closed and open and closed and open on different cycles. And you've just got all these, you know, I'll, I'll call them pressure waves running through the economy. And, and so, and in the meantime, the consumer goes from, you know, no experiences, no services, throw all your money at goods. And then six months later reverses that. And you know, we've got all the tech we need. We've outfitted the home office. I bought all the toys for the kids with the government stimulus money. Now I want to go on vacation. I want to go out to restaurants, right? But they were shut down six months ago. So, so you've got these huge shifts going on in almost every portion of the economy globally throughout the supply chain, and it's still happening, right? So China just said, we're opening up. And, uh, you know, I was looking today, in fact, at a, a chart of Chinese COVID cases, and it's looked like this. Wow. No, no COVID cases in China. That's pretty cool. Until you read the paper and, you know, their morgues are overwhelmed, their hospitals are overwhelmed. And, and all these factories are saying, we don't have enough people showing up to work because they're all sick. So I don't really know what's happening in China, but it's at least possible that we're going to have very few shipments coming into the West Coast in the next three or four months because China is not really producing very much because they're sick. And they're working through that like most of the rest of the world already has. So, you know, with all that noise going on, how do you really figure out what the trend is, the trend in the economy? I don't know. A lot of room for um, different possibilities. But just given, you know, what we're doing with rates, what's happening in the housing market, how, how the inflation is impacting 
the U.S. consumer, I'd say odds are, odds are better than either that we're going to have a recession in the near term. I mean, but if you take your, you know, if, if inflation comes down to the four or 5% range and we do go into a recession, you could see the Fed, you know, maybe starting to, um, you know, react to that with lowering rates. And if that happens on the back half of next year, then, you know, you could kind of looking out, you know, I don't know, 18 to 24 months, you could maybe make a, a good case for, for better returns in the market, possibly. Yep. But I don't, you know, so, I mean, you're really asking what's going to change the Fed's mind, right? What's, what's going to reverse the action of the Fed? So one possibility is we have a recession. We get unemployment to a place where they can't tolerate it anymore. And then they start easing. And after a delay of however many months or quarters, the economy starts to pick up again, right? And maybe that recession was deep and hard enough that we put the, the nail in the coffin of inflation and maybe it wasn't. Don't know. Coin toss. I couldn't tell you. There's another possibility. What happens if we have some kind of a credit crisis somewhere in the globe that creates problems in markets that the Fed really cares about, mostly the treasury markets, and they have to provide liquidity to bail somebody out or to keep some market operating? Also possible. I've been a little bit surprised that we haven't seen that already. So you, you saw a lot of stress, like with the Japanese yen versus the dollar about a month ago, but that kind of came off. And but that remains a possibility. You saw a, a hint of it out of the Bank of England with their experience there with their bond markets. But it's, you know, it's hard for me to believe that we've gone from global negative rates for a decade to very positive rates and there's been nobody blowing up yet. So um, I'm glad we haven't blown anybody up yet, but I'm not sure that you can rule out that possibility yet. I think, you know, because things operate with delays, that is still entirely possible. So it may well be that inflation only gets to 5%. We don't really get much of a recession. This other thing, whatever that is, happens. You have a credit event, and the Fed starts printing money to do, to solve that, to ameliorate that. And so it becomes kind of a two steps forward, one step back over a period of years. You know, as, as the Fed tightens up, something breaks, we've got to loosen, but we didn't get inflation where we wanted it, but we got to take this break. You know, we got to take a break from fighting inflation because we got to solve this other problem. And then we'll come back to inflation when circumstances allow. To me, that's, that's probably a decent way of looking at what happened in the seventies. You know, it's not that the fed didn't see what was going on, but they couldn't necessarily do nothing but solve the inflation problem. There were other things that they had to do. Uh, and it took a decade to work that out. So that's another way of thinking about it. And the third way is kind of the Ray Dalio way, if you've been following him at all. He basically says, and I think I, I've got him about right, uh, but when governments uh, make more commitments than they can pay for, they end up devaluing the currency. Currency devaluation is another way of saying domestic inflation. Uh, so it's going to me, to me, it's going to be very interesting to see what does the federal government do as their borrowing cost goes from essentially nothing to 4%? You know, do they in fact get our fiscal religion and start reducing our expenditures and getting that under control? Or do they whisper to the Fed, hey, we really can't afford this. How about 
3% on the 10 year? How about 2% on the 10 year? How about, how about you start controlling the yield curve a little bit for us? a la Japan for the last decade. Don't know, but it's possible. So, so I've got at least three different scenarios out there, two of which point to inflation staying higher uh, than we would like it to. Well, it's a, you know, interesting way to think in probabilities. And that's the thing with the market. It's, there's a lot of different ways that this all can go and shake out and no one can predict it with any degree of accuracy or certainty. But I think it's, it's helpful to think about different scenarios and what, you know, might happen when the markets over time. Sure. And, and from a portfolio construction perspective, then you start saying, okay, well, if it goes this way, how would I like to be postured? And I would build a portfolio, you know, to, to optimize my portfolio, it would look like this. And if the future looks like that, I would optimize it differently. But you end up having to say, okay, well, since I don't know, I've got to, I've got to be prepared a little bit for that and a little bit for this and a little bit for the other. I've got to have some things that work well in a high inflation environment. I've got to, you know, have some things that work well in a low inflation environment. I've got to have some things that maybe work well in a, a chaotic or crisis environment, right? And I probably need to sit on some dry powder so that I can take advantage of opportunity when it shows up. And I don't have to think, what do I sell in order to buy that? I can simply say, oh, that's a great bargain. Let me put my fears aside and go invest in it. Uh, and that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now, right? I'm trying to be prepared for the three different things. So I'm not completely uh, behind the eight ball if something happens that I, you know, I thought was a low probability. And I've got a lot of dry powder to put to work as things become more clear or as opportunities arise. Good stuff, Jeff. This has been, uh, this has been fun and um, we've enjoyed the conversation with you. Um, we like to ask our guests, all of our guests, one standard closing question. And that is based on your experience in the market and the research you're doing, if you could teach one lesson to the average investor, what would that be? So I'm going to kind of give you an answer that's a little bit more financial planning than investing, right? But as I think about, and I've got, I've got uh, daughters who are now in the early 20s, so they're starting to think about this. That's maybe why it's top of mind. But if you want to grow wealth over time, then a couple of things are important. Time taxes and rate of return. So take the gimmies, right? And the government gives you tax-free compounding and you can start as soon as you start making a buck. So take those easy wins and set yourself up for, for that long-term success by doing that. And, you know, max out your 401k or your 403b, max out your IRAs, protect as much money as you can from the tax man for as long as you can, right? You can't get that up. You can't get 2021's investment opportunity back in 2022. You got to seize it then. So spend less than you make, free up that cash to invest for the long term, and set yourself up for for success that way. Those are easy wins. Don't take a lot of thought. <clears throat> Excuse me. And frankly, for about 10 years of your investing life from the time you're 20, that's about all you need to know. Um, you'll be fine. You'll be good. You'll be way ahead of most people, frankly. Good stuff. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks, Justin. It's been a pleasure. Jeff. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. 
We appreciate it.